Welcome to Module 11 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. In the last module, we talked about the triggers for common law procedural fairness. Specifically, we looked at two separate common law triggers. First, what I call the interests trigger, a reference to procedural fairness being owed where at issue are rights, privileges, or interests. And two, something called legitimate expectation. I proposed to you tests for the application of these triggers, and we also explored exceptions, situations where there is no common law procedural fairness, such as decisions of a legislative nature. But common law is not the only source of procedural entitlements in Canadian administrative law. In this module, we explore two other sources, not tied to whatever procedures are promised in the specific statute delegating power to the delegate, but rather, again, more generic sources of procedural entitlement, like the common law. These two additional sources are found first in Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and second in two provisions in the Canadian Bill of Rights of 1960. So let's begin with Charter Section 7. As you know, Section 7 of the Charter reads, Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And as you have learned in your constitutional law classes, Section 7 can be broken down into its constituent elements. So first, this reference to everyone Section 7, according to the very early jurisprudence of the Supreme Court under the Charter, is a right preserved for human beings, not for juridical persons such as corporations. Now, there's a caveat to that. As you know, corporations can rely on Section 7 to strike down legislation where that legislation could also result in, say, criminal charges imposed on human beings. And so they can serve as a proxy for that human being in challenging the legislation. But generally speaking, again, Section 7 is designed to protect human beings and extend rights to them, not to juridical persons. Second, deprivation of life, liberty, and security of the person. For Section 7 to be triggered, there must be such a deprivation of life, liberty, or security of the person. And we'll come back to what those terms might mean in a moment. And then last, this reference to deprivation without fundamental justice. A mere deprivation of life, liberty, and security of the person is not sufficient to breach Section 7. For Section 7 to be breached, the deprivation of life, liberty, or security of the person must be done in violation of the principles of fundamental justice. Now, in your constitutional classes, you probably focused on what's known as the substantive content of these principles of fundamental justice. But fundamental justice also has a procedural component. And so our focus in this course is on the procedural dimension. Here, the deprivation must not be done without reference to certain procedural safeguards. So Section 7 creates these procedural standards which come into play in certain administrative law settings. That is, where there has been a deprivation or a risk of deprivation of a human being's life, liberty, and security of the person. So from this discussion, you can pull together a test. The first prong of the test 
is a trigger point. Fundamental justice is triggered where Section 7 interests are at stake, namely life, liberty, security of the person. What exactly constitutes a deprivation or potential deprivation of life, liberty, or security of the person? That's a matter to be determined on a case-by-case basis. But just a few examples of the sorts that you see in the jurisprudence You can find instances where life, liberty, or security of the person is said to be deprived, where prisoners are transferred from a less strict prison to a stricter prison, or where refugees engage in a refugee determination process that might result in their deportation. Those are the sort of administrative decisions that might trigger the application of Section 7. So let's drill down a bit and look at each of these categories. The first is life. So the right to life is engaged where the law or state action imposes death or an increased risk of death, either directly or indirectly. So imagine deportation from Canada to another state that might maltreat the person and put at risk their very life. Liberty. Well, liberty includes freedom from physical restraint. That seems obvious. Examples in the administrative law context include the prison cases that I mentioned before, where there's a transfer from one institutional setting to another that's more strict or within the same institution. There's a transfer from the general population to administrative segregation, what is colloquially known as solitary confinement. Liberty interests are also raised by extradition proceedings, where there's a transfer from Canada to another jurisdiction that might then impose strictures on them as part of criminal process. Parole conditions imposed on an individual upon release from prison are administrative proceedings that trigger liberty interests. Other examples would be any other form of state compulsion or prohibition that affects one's ability to move freely. But liberty interests also go further than these sort of physical manifestations of restraints on one's physical integrity. Liberty is tantamount to personal autonomy, the freedom to make personal choices free of state interference. Now, to be clear, that's not every personal choice. As the Supreme Court indicated in a case called Blanco, although an individual has a right to make fundamental personal choices free from state interference, such personal autonomy is not synonymous with unconstrained freedom. At issue, however, are choices that are fundamentally or inherently personal, such that by their very nature, they implicate basic choices going to the core of what it means to enjoy individual dignity and independence. And so we're talking about state-imposed constraints on a fundamental interest that individuals enjoy. Turning to the last aspect of the list in Section 7, security of the person. It protects both the physical and psychological integrity of the individual. So an obvious example of something that might impair physical integrity would be the prospect of removal to torture. The potential harm there is obvious. It imposes physical harm on an individual. It can also impose psychological harm. And so the psychological harm that's prohibited by security of the person is serious state-imposed psychological stress. And as the Supreme Court suggested in Blanco, this is a high threshold. At best, security of the person protects against only serious psychological incursions resulting from state interference with an individual interest of fundamental importance. Now, sometimes you see efforts by litigants to argue that Section 7, and specifically security of the person, guards property rights or protects the right to practice a given profession. 
you can always find an eccentric case or so at the lower court level where this sort of argument seemed to have some traction. But frankly, Section 7 does not protect property rights. And the lower courts have been relatively consistent in saying that Section 7 does not guard the right to practice a profession. And so if you're relying on Section 7 in an effort to argue property rights or the right to practice a profession, you are almost certainly overreaching. The only caveat I'd make is the sort of language you saw in a Supreme Court case called Gosselin that talks about Section 7 perhaps protecting against deprivation of economic rights fundamental to human survival. That, however, is a very narrow tranche of economic rights. And so to underscore the qualities that connect these three prongs in Section 7, these three qualities in Section 7, life, liberty, and security of the person, we're talking about a very serious infringement of an interest by the state. And I want to underscore a very serious infringement of a protected interest by the state. There are not a lot of administrative proceedings that rise to the level of triggering Section 7. Sometimes I see a propensity on the part of students to instantly invoke Section 7 for any administrative decision of any sort. That's wrong. This is not a threshold like the three-prong test at common law for Knight, where at issue were very basic interests. The Knight test is very accommodating in terms of triggering procedural fairness. Section 7 is not. Section 7 is reserved for only very serious interests. It only protects the most serious interests that an individual has vis-a-vis -vis the state. Now, a good example, going back to the early days of the Charter, of where Section 7 applied in an administrative setting is called Singh. It's an immigration case from 1985. And here, in the Immigration Act, as it then existed, the Minister of Immigration could act on the basis of what was known as the Refugee Status Advisory Committee and making a determination as to whether someone was a refugee or not. Now, at issue here was the fact that this refugee process was done entirely on paper. There was no oral hearing. There was no chance for the refugee applicants to present their case in person, viva voce, to the adjudicator themselves. Rather, again, it was done on paper. There was no oral hearing. The matter ends up at the Supreme Court on the issue as to whether an oral hearing is obligatory in the context of refugee determination. Why? Well, we'll talk first about why it might be obligatory in a Section 7 context. And three of the six judges who were involved in this case focused on Section 7 of the Charter. Justice Wilson penned their decision. And she looked at the act and concluded, look, the statute's very clear. There's no prospect of an oral hearing. That's prohibited. And so that we cannot resolve this issue through common law procedural fairness. Because remember, as we said in the last module, if parliament in a statute precludes the application of common law procedural fairness, it's gone because of the concept of parliamentary supremacy. So the common law is not available. But of course, the relationship between the legislature and the charter is very different. As we know from discussions earlier in this course, and as you know from your other studies, the legislature, parliament, statutes, statutes are subject to the charter. You cannot negate the charter through mere enactment in a statute unless you're prepared to use Section 33 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Notwithstanding Clause, 
or retrospectively, there's a prospect that a charter right could be limited using a Section 1 justification. But the bottom line is that the charter continues to apply. And so when you're looking at the statute, the fact that the statute says no oral hearing for you does not end the inquiry. You have to then ask the question, well, that's all well and good, but is this a circumstance where Section 7 applies? And if Section 7 does apply, then there's a prospect that that piece of legislation is unconstitutional. And so that's where the court goes in this case. It looks at Section 7 and concludes that for Section 7 to be triggered, there has to be a deprivation of life, liberty, or security of the person. Was there such a deprivation in this case? Yes, says Justice Wilson. The prospect of being deported and facing torture or persecution constitutes a deprivation of the security of the person at minimum. And the security of the person interest encompasses a freedom from the threat of physical punishment and suffering, as well as a freedom from such punishment itself. And it doesn't matter that it wasn't the Canadian government that would be visiting this violation of the security of the person on the individual. If the Canadian government removed the person from Canada, they would set the dominoes of falling. And that was enough to raise a Section 7 security of the person interest. And so there was, in other words, security of the person triggered, Section 7 applied, which prompted the court then to look at the content of fundamental justice. And as we'll talk about in future, the content of fundamental justice tends to overlap with common law procedural fairness. And so the question as to whether an oral hearing is required or not is governed by the sorts of considerations that generally would apply in deciding whether an oral hearing is obligatory at common law. And so on the facts in this case, the Supreme Court concluded that largely because credibility is at issue when you adjudicate a refugee case, an oral hearing really was obligatory. And those provisions of the statute which precluded an oral hearing were therefore unconstitutional. And this seems a good point at which to just underscore this issue of content of fundamental justice by first repeating a point I just made. Fundamental justice, unlike common law procedural fairness, is a constitutional principle. So while it is possible for a legislature in a statute to preclude the application of common law procedural fairness, it cannot preclude the application of fundamental justice without use of Section 33 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Notwithstanding Clause. And at the federal level, it's never used Section 33. Parliament has never invoked Section 33 in a statute. Of course, there's also the prospect of a Section 1 justification for a limitation on any charter right. However, I will underscore that a justification under Section 1 is comparatively uncommon for Section 7 procedural rights. You will have some difficulty finding many cases in which Section 7 procedural entitlements have been limited successfully using a Section 1 justification. The second point I'll make about one area where fundamental justice is different from common law procedural fairness is that on the same facts, if both fundamental justice and procedural fairness were to apply, it may well be that because life, liberty, or security of the person is at issue, a court will conclude that fundamental justice requires just a little bit more procedural entitlement. Both fundamental justice and common law procedural fairness guarantee two broad classes of procedural rights, which we will talk about in a future module, that is, audial trumpartum, the right to be heard, and nemo judix, the right to an unbiased decision maker. But the actual quantum of procedural entitlement, how much of a right to be heard you have, for example, is governed by a separate test known as the Baker test. And one of the considerations in the Baker test is 
the importance of the issue to the individual. And you can make an argument that because there's a charter right in play, it's a much more important issue, and therefore that provides a sort of octane in terms of the amount of procedural entitlement one should have. We'll talk about this more when we talk about the content of procedural fairness. Okay, so that's the Chart of Rights in Section 7. I want to talk about the Bill of Rights of 1960 because the Bill of Rights of 1960, often forgotten, I'd be surprised if you've talked much about the Bill of Rights by this point in your legal career. I'm a big advocate of the Bill of Rights because, as we'll see, the Bill of Rights provides some advantages in administrative law over Section 7 of the Charter. Now, the Bill of Rights was enacted by Parliament in 1960 during the Diefenbaker government. It's a federal statute. It's confined as a federal statute to the federal level of government. And so it applies to statutes of Parliament and to decision-making under those statutes. It's an ordinary statute in the sense that it was enacted by Parliament. It's not entrenched in the Constitution in the same way the Charter is, and so it can be amended in a regular legislative process. But it's called quasi-constitutional because it includes a paramountcy provision, namely Section 2 of the Bill of Rights. Section 2 says that every law of Canada shall, unless it is expressly declared by an act of Parliament, that it shall operate notwithstanding the Canadian Bill of Rights to be so construed and applied so as not to limit the rights that are then listed in the Canadian Bill of Rights. And so it is possible for Parliament in a future statute to negate the application of the Canadian Bill of Rights, but you don't find that very often, largely because Parliament probably has forgotten about the Canadian Bill of Rights. And because of that Section 2, the Bill of Rights, like the Charter, can prevail over a regular statute of Parliament. In other words, if there's a statute of Parliament that takes away a procedural right that's guaranteed in the Canadian Bill of Rights, that statute is of no force and effect, unless it also purports to override the Canadian Bill of Rights. And so the Canadian Bill of Rights applies to most federal administrative decision-making, although, as we'll see, it's only advantageous to use it in a limited number of cases. Now, the, the Bill of Rights applies to laws of Canada, that is, federal laws, so it applies to Acts of Parliament and also any order, rule, or regulation made under an Act of Parliament. And while I've seen some in government argue otherwise, this language is broad enough to encompass decisions and actions made by delegates exercising delegated power under statute. So it applies to administrative decision-making. It's also been said to apply, and you'll find that in some early cases under the Bill of Rights, to the exercise of prerogative power. And so what aspects of the Bill of Rights are relevant for our purposes? Well, specifically Section 1A and Section 2E. Section 1A says, It is hereby recognized and declared that in Canada there have existed and shall continue to exist without discrimination by reason of race, national origin, color, religion, or sex, the following human rights and fundamental freedoms, namely A, the right of the individual to life, liberty, security of the person, and enjoyment of property, and the right not to be deprived thereof except by due process of law. 2E says, I'm just going to truncate this, no law of Canada shall be construed or applied so as to E, deprive a person of the right to a fair hearing in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice for the determination of rights and obligations. And so basically, we have two possible procedural guarantees. In 1A, there's this reference to due process of law, an obligation that arises 
where there's a deprivation of an individual's right to life, liberty, security of the person, and enjoyment of property. And I keep emphasizing that. I'll come back to it. And then 2E, a fair hearing in accordance with fundamental justice where a person's rights and obligations are being determined. So let's look at the two possible procedural guarantees and their components. Let's break them down into a test of sorts. So first, Section 1A. Who can rely on the protections in 1A? Well, 1A talks about individuals. Remember in Section 7 of the Charter, the term used was everyone. And we said that the reference to everyone meant that human beings rather than juridical persons enjoyed the rights set out in Section 7. Well, so too with the term individual. There's no Supreme Court jurisprudence on point, but the lower courts have held that corporations are excluded from the protections of Section 1A. Next, what are the triggers for 1A? Well, there's this reference to deprivation of an individual's right to life, liberty, security of the person, and enjoyment of property. That trigger sounds a lot like Section 7, at least the first three items do, but we have an added ground that will trigger this section enjoyment of property. And imagine the number of administrative decisions out there that might implicate property. That range of decisions is much vaster than the range of decisions that implicate life, liberty, or security of the person. And what procedural guarantees must be met once the section is triggered? Well, this concept of due process of law. Now, there have been relatively few cases defining what is meant by due process of law, but let me say this that there is no real distinction to be made between due process of law and common law procedural fairness. At minimum, due process of law includes common law procedural fairness, and so audial partum and nemo judex. Let's look at our second possible source of procedural guarantees in the Bill of Rights, Section 2E, that fair hearing in accordance with fundamental justice where a person's rights and obligations are being determined. As the Supreme Court said in a case called Authorson in 2003, 2E guarantees fundamental justice in proceedings before any tribunal or administrative body that determines individual rights and obligations. And so again, it's an administrative protection. Let's break it down. Whose rights and obligations? A person's. Well, what, pray tell, is a person? Well, as I'm sure you know, the use of person under the Federal Interpretation Act and in common practice includes not just human beings, but also so-called juridical persons, that is, corporations. And in fact, there are several federal court decisions suggesting that corporations can rely on 2E of the Bill of Rights. And where is the section triggered? Whenever a person's rights and obligations are being determined. Well, what's a right or obligation? Initially, rights and obligations in 2E were interpreted very narrowly by the courts. They had to be strict legal rights. But this position was rejected by a plurality of the Supreme Court in that same Singh case from 1985 that I talked about a moment ago. In the Singh case, Justice Betts and two others focused on the Bill of Rights objection to the absence of an oral hearing in the adjudication of a refugee claim. And they concluded that, yes, Persons have no legal rights to be admitted as a refugee, but they really had a strong interest in the outcome. This wasn't just a mere privilege that was being refused or revoked. And so the bottom line is that the Singh case suggests that where there's a strong interest in the outcome, that's enough to constitute a right or obligation. And then once the section's triggered, what do you get? Well, you get a fair hearing in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. And what does this mean? 
Well, there's no fixed standard on what constitutes a fair hearing in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. At the very least, though, we do have language from the courts suggesting that it amounts to common law procedural fairness. You get audi ultram partum and nemo judex. The same sort of entitlements flow from 2E as flow from the common law. And so you can see here the synergy in terms of the actual content. The content of the procedural entitlement for all these different triggers tends to funnel down to the same preoccupations that is audi ultram partum and nemo judex, which is why in a future module, we're going to deal with the content of these procedural entitlements in one fell swoop as a single module and not try to distinguish between the different triggers that might cause the application of these entitlements. Now, to conclude, a footnote. Well, are there exceptions to the application of the Charter, Section 7, and the Bill of Rights that we should discuss? Because remember, when we talked about common law procedural fairness, we spent a lot of time talking about legislative decisions. Legislative decisions were not amenable to common law procedural fairness. Is that true also for Section 7 and the Bill of Rights? Well, it's hard to give you a clear answer on this because there's so little jurisprudence that really spells this question out in any detail. But I think we can infer from what the Supreme Court has said in other contexts that this distinction between something that's legislative and non-legislative in terms of administrative decision-making also applies in discussing Section 7 and the Canadian Bill of Rights. And so if you've got rulemaking, that is the making of regulations, or if you've got that broad policy-based exercise of discretion and you're trying to apply Section 7 or the Canadian Bill of Rights to it, I think you do need to worry about that being a legislative decision not amenable to any procedural protections in administrative law. Okay, so that's it for our discussion of triggers in terms of procedural entitlements in Canadian administrative law. We've seen common law triggers flowing from the three-prong test in Knight and from legitimate expectation. We've seen a Section 7 charter trigger, and we've seen two Bill of Rights triggers. And we've seen that in all three instances, the rights that are triggered, that is the procedural entitlements that are triggered, are analogous or similar. They are, broadly speaking, divided into those categories of audio ultra partum, the right to be heard, and nemojudics. Now, under those heads of audio ultra partum and nemojudics, there's a whole bunch of specific actions, procedural actions, that have to be met by the delegate. And so we will be spending a fair amount of time over the next few modules discussing those procedural entitlements that decision makers must observe in making administrative decisions. Until then, this ends Module 11.